This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Philip Summers and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. Hey, 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 everybody, and welcome back to the Educational Triage Podcast. This week, I'm so excited because not only do we have our Philip. Aloha. We have an incredibly special guest with us this week. We have Dr. Rosemarie Allen. And Dr. Rosemarie Allen is a professor of early childhood education at the Metropolitan University of Denver. And she has over 40 years of experience in this field of early childhood education. And her research interests include implicit bias, culturally responsive practices, and racial equity. She's a respected keynote speaker and consultant, and she has served in leadership roles at the Colorado Department of Human Services and Front Range Community College. And here are some other details that, you, that she doesn't know that I know. Uh-oh. She's the recipient of the prestigious Teach Award, which is given to early childhood educators who've made significant contributions in the field. She's a member of the National Pyramid Model Consortium, which is a group of early childhood experts who are working to improve the quality of early childhood education. (laughs) And she's also the co-author of the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in Early Childhood Education. So, Dr. Allen, good morning and welcome. Good morning. I am so excited to be here. (laughs) As are we, because... You are going to be working with us on some of the seminal work that really needs to be done in order for us to, well, actually for our students to be able to achieve, Yes, I think, and also for our society and culture. And I think that this plays a huge part in it. So... um and you were also on the Liberty podcast. And so if anybody has a chance to listen to that, do so. It's riveting. So just to get going, we have over 700,000 students in some form of incarceration. And most of those are under the age of 18. And were most of those preventable, do you believe? Absolutely, I believe they were preventable. Tony, no parent has a child and looks at it and say, I can't wait for you to go to jail. That just doesn't happen. Yeah, the benefits aren't that good, are they? (laughs) Not at all. So I believe most of those who are incarcerated, if not all, did not need to be. And somewhere along this, this journey of their lives, They fell through the cracks. And if we can identify those cracks, then we can prevent incarceration. When I worked in state government, I was in the Office of Children, Youth, and Families. And in that office was the Division of Child Care, Early Childhood, Division of Youth Corrections, and Division of um, Social social Work, Social social Services. And I would tell the other directors that my job was to put them out of business. My job was to do it so well in early childhood that we will have no need for youth corrections and no need for social services because children would not be taken away from their families. That would be wonderful if that could happen. Absolutely. Truly. I'd like it too. So what, uh, let's look at the impact of home primarily. Um, what what are the leading causes of 
children at the very beginning, where does it all begin? Um, let's say that it, at home and then the child comes into the, I, I suppose I could say the care of the school or the, or the educational biome. Um, what, what are some of the causes that you see that might begin the struggle for a student to be successful and to just stay out of trouble, I suppose? Tony, that's, that's such a great question. And to answer it requires us to go back and okay. to go back into history because the problem is systemic and institutional racism. Okay. And what has happened to historically disadvantaged and marginalized children and their families. And when you go all the way back, and I won't go all the way back to slavery, but we know that's where it starts. But even when you look at what happened following the Civil War in this country, we had this amazing period of reconstruction when we had federal troops in the South ensuring the rights of those who were, near, who were newly freed. And when you look at that period, Black folks and communities and their schools thrived. They did very, very, very well. That was the sweet spot in our history. Unfortunately, the federal troops were withdrawn, the Compromise of 1877, and Jim Crow and um, just blatant racism began to take hold to keep Black people in their place. It was also around this time that laws were codified based on race, that Black people were left out of, for instance, the benefits of having been a, being a veteran, GI benefits that would, allow, would have allowed Black veterans to go to school, earn a trade, get mm -hmm. unemployment. They were left out of that. That's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. They <laughs> were left out of Social Security. Yeah. They were left out of so many things. And then after all of that, the redlining. So let's talk about home, family, and communities. When you look at redlining, here are these, these veterans wanting to use their GI bills. They wanted to move into the nice suburbs. Remember the move suburb, suburban movement? Mm -hmm. But they were denied because there were racist covenants and laws that said, you can't live here. And then when they found a place where they could live at higher interest rates and the homes cost more and the infrastructure, infrastructure was worse, then they were redlined, which meant that they couldn't get loans. And if they did, they were at exorbitant interest rates. They could not get insurance because the insurance companies worked together with banking and everyone else to outline undesirable communities. So here you have people who are in some of the worst communities with the worst infrastructure um, paying so much that they became house poor and then the worst schools. So when you look at home, this is where historically disadvantaged people were relegated and where they lived. And of course, now you have to deal with all of the infrastructural breakdowns from the environment to the medical, to the school, to the judicial system. And it's like trying to grow a rose in concrete. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier when you plant a seed. When you plant, you have to plant in fertile soil. And then when you water it, you want to make sure you are caring for that plant and cutting off anything that can damage that plant. Mm -hmm. And then you can allow that plant to grow. So when you talk about the home, many of these homes were planted in very toxic soil. And that's why we see the generational poverty mm -hmm. and generational um, toxins that make escaping, because I was one of those who was planted then, who mm -hmm. make escaping more of an anomaly than surviving. Yeah, you can't pull yourself up by your boot straps if you haven't got boots. <laughs> you don't have the boots. Yeah. Now, what happened in the 1960s, they had wonderful studies. The Perry Preschool Project went into Ypsilanti, Michigan, in this historically disadvantaged area with the best of all intentions. 
and we know what they say about best intentions. However, they decided, how do we fix these broken black kids and their families? And they created a high quality early childhood program. And the participants in this program were 100% black, 100% poor, and what they labeled as educably mentally retarded, which did not have the stigma that it has today. It was a designation. But what that program showed is that regardless of the environment, if children went into a high quality early childhood program, they could thrive and their lifetime outcomes can be changed. So that's one thing. During that time as well, Head Start was created. And Head Start said, okay, we know high quality early childhood programming helps, but what about the families? So they are the first to consider this two-pronged two approach. So they not only focused on the child, but they focused on early childhood, health, dental care, and the families, empowered the families to be decision makers in their programs, and provided a career pathway for families to then become teachers in the program. So when we talk about the home, we've got a lot of work to do around home, community, and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And we can't do it all. But what can we do? We can focus on early childhood. So yes. how did that play out, though, in the long run? Because now we know that Head Start is national. Mm -hmm. Is it a viable program still? Or did people decide that they needed to fix what didn't need fixing? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. And because the focus was really based on a deficit model, we have to address that. We have to address the inherent racism that created all of these programs in the 60s, but we can't do it without looking at the history. So mm -hmm. I know that David Weichart and everyone who worked with him had, they wanted the best for children. And over the last 50, 60 years of Head Start, they have really, really come from a, a, a more um, strength-based approach, more community-based approach, and mm -hmm. really addressing equity, racism, and bias across the board. Because even though it started with this very deficit perspective, we can't ignore the amazing positive outcomes. Children, for instance, who participated in the Perry Preschool Project, they're still in this study almost 50 years later. Wow. They had, yes. It's a longitudinal study, and it is magnificent to see that mm. these children were less likely to have teenage pregnancies, less likely to be incarcerated, less likely to depend on the welfare system, uh, more likely to be gainfully employed. So when you look at that program and the benefits it's truly remarkable and something that can be replicated. And we see the same thing with Head Start. Underlying that all, there's an interesting point. I, I used to work with a colleague and we had a fairly diverse group working. We were working with uh, alternative ed kids, of course. Um, learned to approach them one kid at a time real quick. Uh, I'm kind of blessed with that in my life. One person at a time kind of thing. But he was talking about, we talk about it at students say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we trying to impose our middle class values on this student? And, you know, in that regard, it's like, yeah, what do we expect versus where are they really was sort of, that was the way of him saying it. I never forgot that I held that dear, you know, am I imposing my quote middle class values on a student? Absolutely. And see, mm -hmm. that's what's happening. And, and you touch on a really beautiful point, Philip, because although we know that these programs work, what has happened over the years, so we have the Perry Preschool Project, we have the Abbasidarian Project and the Chicago Child Study. And all of those studies are predominantly black populations. Preschool, Perry Preschool, 100% black. Yeah. Abbasidarian, 93% black. 
of Chicago Child Study, 97% Black. Mm -hmm. However, it's a shame today that those programs, high-quality programs, are not accessible to Black children. Because? So they, because they're not in their environments, they're too costly. Head Start is doing a wonderful job, but they cannot meet the demand. So children, when Black children, Hispanic children, Indigenous children, when they go to child care in their communities, which is where you seek child care, mm-hmm. they're the, of the lowest quality. So they're not reaping the benefit of the data <laughs> that they contributed to saying this program works for us. Where's the equity? That is the problem. So when we talk about the equity, how do we increase the quality of child care programs, early childhood programs and preschools in the neighborhoods that has where it's proven can benefit the most and where it's needed the most. And to get to Philip's point, when they do access these programs, they're pushed out the back door through suspensions and expulsions. Right. We're going to get Bingo. to that. Yes. We're going to yes. get to that. Then they don't fit. Yes. Quote, fit. Yes. Ah. Hmm, right. Go on. Well, we were talking, we, we, we had Tara Garcia Matthewson on the show. I don't know if yeah. you know her or not. But, and she was talking about the hidden expulsions. And this is yeah. exactly what she was talking about. And that's what brought me around to finding you during my research. And it is, why do we have staff who have this bias? I mean, it doesn't matter what ethnicity they are, really, or what race they are. It's because, as I've pointed out, these sometimes they're people who just want dominion over other people. And so if you are not going to kowtow to what they want, then you get pushed to the side. And already, if you are coming from an environment that's lacking and they see that, you are not good enough. It's kind of like a misshapen vegetable. Mm-hmm. You're tossed to the side. You're not marketable. Mm-hmm. But you still have the same, you mm. st- still have the same nutritional value. But so how do you train, because you work with training some of these early childhood educators, how do you train them or what needs to happen for them to get it through their heads to value every single child Mm -hmm. and, and not to be, if, if Johnny keeps doing this, because we know that the top, that big black boys, the three B's. Yes. Are, the first ones to go out that back door. Absolutely. So how do we remediate that? One thing we have to do is recognize that all of us are flawed and every single one of us are biased. We also have to recognize that we are more segregated today than we ever were before Brown versus Board of Education. We do not interact in diverse groups. We, We live separately. We worship separately. Everything we do is within our own racial group. So we have very little contact in terms of diversity, especially white people. People of color tend to interact more because they're usually the minority accessing white spaces. So what happens? You are isolated. The only perception you have of people that you perceive as different from you is what you get from the media what you got from your racist, homophobic, transphobic grandparents, and I'm just speaking broadly. And Mm -hmm. all of those messages are deeply, deeply rooted in your system. And when you receive those messages, then you do not see other people's humanity. You don't see them as the same as you. And it's sort of ignorant bias. So ignorant. And you, well, and it's, white spaces. Aren't schools sort of white spaces, the way they're oh, structured? Oh, schools are white spaces. Yeah, so, they very much are. Yeah, I agree. So, so agree. here you have people yeah. who are ignorant to the messages they receive. Mm-hmm. They believe those messages. They go into environments and they look 
for those messages because they believe that's who you are and how you behave. And then children become the casualties of it. Mm. So one of the things that we do first is we help people to really, really see and acknowledge their biases without shame or blame. I had an older white gentleman years ago say to me, you know, Rosemary, I'm tired of talking about slavery. I'm so sick of all of this. I've never, ever in my whole life owned a slave. And I said, I'm so happy to hear that because I've never in my whole life been a slave. So you've never owned one and I've never been one. But here we are with the residual impacts of that original form of oppression, one of them, in our hands. And we're both impacted by it in different ways. So what do we do? So we didn't start this mess, but we certainly have a responsibility to correct it so that we're not continuing to perpetrate it. So I'll, I'll give you an example. And Philip, this gets to your point about imposing our middle-class values. In one of my classes, I take my students on field trips. Um, the last two field trips, I have them walk around five points here in Denver, uh, which is historically a very dangerous area. And my students have to walk through and they weep and whine and cry and say their parents told them never to go there. And then they go find out that 50% of the residents are white and they're safe. But that helps them to get in touch with their bias. But the last two field trips, one is to a Buddhist temple and one is to a black church. At the Buddhist temple during the program, the, the, the mm, sensei calls the children up to the front and he tells them a story. And then he asks if there are any questions. And the children who are participating, they raise their hand and he calls on every child whose name is raised, whose hand is raised. And at the end of that, he says, are there any other questions? And he waits. Seeing none, you can go join your parents. The next week, they go to a black church, a hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, loud church where everybody yells out and talks to the pastor and people say, preach, pastor, hallelujah. They can jump up and clap anytime they want to. And then we call in response. Then we go back to the classroom and we talk about behavioral expectations based on what we saw. And I help my students realize that if these children were grow, grew up in this Buddhist temple, they didn't just go on Sundays. They went on Mondays and Tuesdays. They lived in the community. This is their way of being and their culture. So what happens to these children when the teacher asks a question and they raise their hand? And then the teacher goes, I'm only going to call on one more. That child will be so confused. It's like, but my hand is up. Because they know if they raise their hand, they'll be called on. Imagine what that does to them, the invisibility of when a teacher doesn't recognize them. On the other hand, here comes this little black child who's in church on Sunday, YPD on Monday, choir rehearsal on Tuesday. Their whole life is around that church. The teacher picks up a book and says, I'm going to read Clifford and the Big Red Dog. And the, te- and the child goes, I know that book, teacher. I got that book at home. Okay, that's great. And and Clifford went to the park. My auntie took me to the park yesterday, teacher. And you know what? My cousins were there and this and that. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Imagine kid. what happens to that <laughs> child. What are they labeled as? Disruptive, impulsive, disrespectful. And it happens day after day until that child is removed from the circle for reading, removed from the group, eventually removed from the classroom and removed from the school simply because there's a cultural disconnect in the way that they speak and respond. And that carries on for 12 years. For 12 whole years. Can I tell you, I was at a conference and I was supposed to speak about um, my leadership path journey. And um, they asked me a question. They said, what has been your biggest barrier in terms of your leadership? And I answered very honestly, and I said, white women. And of course, there was an audible gasp from the group, but I just decided, usually I wouldn't have said that, but I decided we need to talk about this 
equity in early childhood is what I was getting at. Mm-hmm. So they said, can you explain? I said, yes. Let's think about it this way. When we go, when a child is a year old and they go to a child care program, the first person they meet is the director, white woman. Second person, assistant director, white woman. It's not till they go back into their classrooms and they see a Hispanic or black woman who cleans their bottom, makes their diapers, who serves them. This happens at two years old, at three years old, at four. And then the child goes to elementary school. All of the teachers are white. 80% of K-12 teachers are white women. And then... All of the people who serve them are people of color. Janitors are black and brown. Bus drivers are black and brown. Cafeteria workers are black and brown. Front office staff are black and brown. Mm -hmm. So white children learn that people of color exist just to serve them. And by the time they get in my classroom, for so many of them, I am their first black teacher. And sometimes they have a hard time with that. So by the time I was over all of early childhood in the state, I was surrounded by black women, by white women who has never, ever, ever had to take authority from a black woman. And it did not sit well. Who am I? Who do I think I am? Challenging everything I say or do because they've never had to take authority. Anything. They never heard a no from a black woman. And heaven forbid if it's a black male. Because then... You intimidate me. I'm afraid of you. He yelled at me. I had one of my six foot five, very dark black colleagues say, I'm so tired of shrinking to make white women comfortable. Yikes. Holy cow. How do you think? Makes sense. How do you think that that message is received? I think it made people think. I did back it up with, this is why equity in early childhood is so important. Children need to see diversity at the very top levels. I work with many, many organizations, as you know, across the country that have, they have a heart for equity, yet all of their leadership are white. Yeah. Every mm-hmm. position. So what do we do about that? So we have to address it. Because what we know in the early childhood workforce is that Black women, regardless of position or education, are paid on average $1.50 less an hour than white women. Wow. On average, regardless of education. The same way with Hispanic workers, they are... Sorry. It's okay. So with the same way with Hispanic women who are more um, relegated to the infant toddler areas with very few opportunities for professional development. I work with a school in Chicago. Oh my goodness, this principal had such a heart for equity. And he came to me once and said, you know, Rosemary, we're doing all this work and it bothers me that all of my teachers are white and all of my paras and assistant teachers are black and brown women. I don't know how to recruit black teachers. I can't seem to find them. And I said, well, why don't we first start with conducting an audit of your files, of your employees? Let's see what that looks like first. He was shocked to find that about 47% of his parents had master's degrees and qualified as teachers. He was shocked. Mm. And what was more shocking to him is that he paid for their education. He said, I know they went to school. <laughs> what is it that didn't allow me to see them as teachers. Wow. I have a story about that because I'm uniquely disguised as an older white male. <laughs> I'm always taken as an older white male in those, some of those negative aspects. And, and I have a black studies degree. And from a very early age, you know, I was like racially aware because I was watching the Alabama, the Selma, Edmund Pettus Bridge, as a very young child going, why is that is the silliest black versus white? I just did not jive. I need to know. And so I spent a life looking into that. And so here I am, you know, 
discovering things that make me quite uncomfortable sometimes and, and sometimes feeling really fortunate. And then I'm taken as a older white male and I'm, I'm kind of overlooked in some ways. And the system itself sort of brands people. And I tried to offer and offer at an African-American history unit. And I actually switched with the high school and someone came over and taught art at the alternatives. And I went to the high school and did an Afram class. And then it sort of went out of favor. Like people, like you said, we're started in our own groups. And so I noticed that I was part of another group. Like, well, he's older white male. He can't possibly know anything about that. And I'm like screaming, no, but wait, I can help. You know, I got this unique, <laughs> it's, it's this disguise, but it's not disguising what I've learned. And so, yeah, how do we address that? That we're all walking around trying to put each other in, in boxes. Like, well, oh, I see you and you're like this. Yes. And, you know, Philip, that's the key. How do we eliminate the boxes Yeah. and see people's humanity? And that's my life's work. Eliminating the biases, helping people recognize when you see me, you put me in a box. And guess what? We do it all the time. There's a woman I work with with the governor's office, worked with her for years, was at a banquet. She came to the table and said, oh, let me introduce you to my partner. And she introduced me and then she left. And I said to my daughter, who's an adult, I said, you know, I didn't know that she worked in a law firm. She goes, well, mom, where did you get that from? I said, well, she introduced her partner. She goes, that's so not what she meant. <laughs> that's awesome, mom. I didn't quite get it. <laughs> she said, that's her partner, like girlfriend, like in love, partner. And I went, yeah. oh, and I am not homophobic. But do you know right. what my brain did? It was looking for the gay box. This woman I knew. Love, love it. Didn't change anything, but we automatically. But you know what I tell people all the time? Yeah. You can heighten your awareness of your bias because the minute I started looking for that gay box, I was able to stop. And I yeah. tell people all the time, if you can stop, it's four parts. Notice, hey, I'm looking for the gay box. Wonder why? Why am I doing that? Stop your behavior. You can disrupt bias in the moment. Hey, that's an old white guy. What would he know? Stop. Hey, I just labeled him. I don't even know if he's white. He could be a light-skinned black guy for all I know. (laughs) Notice, he just doesn't seem to fit. Wonder why. Wonder why. Because he looks like an old white guy. Stop the behavior. Let's see what he really has to offer. That works every time. Mm -hmm. It allows us to see people's humanity. I think there's a comfort in knowing which box you can toss people into, though. Oh, yes. Because, and they say, <laughs> the interesting thing is, I've heard people comment that it shows a lack of neural development if that's all you do. Because I know so many people, as soon as they meet somebody, boom, that person is labeled. Boom, that person is a good person or a bad person. Mm -hmm. Everything is in black and white. And it shows that you are incapable of critical thinking. But if we just take people as who they are and we work with them, that's too much work. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. If you are black, you act like this and you will behave like this. And this is how... I would like you to be, if you are gay, these are the parameters I will allow you to operate Mm -hmm. in. That's it. And they're this narrow. They're extremely. That people don't even see the intersectionalities. Look Mm -hmm. how fast I look for that gay box when I have sisters and cousins who are gay. You know what I mean? But still, Mm -hmm. it's like that box. But what you talked about, Tony, is... We have to look at the complexities of people. And that mm-hmm. does require a lot of work because I'm so much more than a black woman. You know, I am black and I'm a woman and I'm a Christian and I am right. a warrior. And, you know, when, and when you can allow mm-hmm. yourself to get out of that narrow way of thinking because it's so easy. It's so it lazy. Yeah. One of the ways I found I did it subconsciously, or people do it too, is, hi, I'm so-and-so. And they say, hi, what do you do, so-and-so? 
we classify each other by what we do for a living. What we do, what we wear, how we speak. Oh my goodness. If one more person tells me I'm articulate, I think I'll just scream in their ear. (laughs) It was like, what what did you expect? (laughs) That was in touch with your bias. Right. Well, how how come you don't do this? Why aren't you? Do do you do these things? Yeah. It's, yeah. Don't all people that do this profession do this, for example? Or are all professionals better than working class people? Which is a little bit obvious to me. It's like, well, you're a doctor, lawyer, and accountant. Or are you the manager of a restaurant chain? You know, it's like, oh. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing. I have a niece who was born premature, had a trach, had some developmental delays. Mm -hmm. Um, Wonderful, wonderful spirit, hard worker in Alabama. You cannot get a high school diploma unless you pass their exit exam. Mm -hmm. Took it three times. She didn't pass. Her hopes of going to college were just just killed. She was not able to go, and it really, really um, impacted her self-esteem. She started working as a manager at a shoe store. Long Mm -hmm. story short, this little girl has a janitorial business with 25 employees. She cleans Airbnbs, dorm rooms, hotels. She has a rental car service with a fleet of 10 cars. She just bought a magnificent almost mansion in Alabama, and she's doing so well. We cannot throw people away because they don't don't know. We just don't know. But you and I were talking about this not long ago, Philip. I mean, I said one of the poorest kids in my class is now the wealthiest kid in the class. In fact, he's one of the wealthiest people in the state. One of the wealthiest people in the state. And more importantly, is they found a purpose. You know, that's what everyone's like. Go to high school, study this, so you can go to college and find your purpose. Well, people go into business. I have a ton of admiration for them because that takes tons of work and tons of purpose. (laughs) I don't know that you find your purpose, but you find your, you should find your passion. Yeah. And what you want to do. And as I mean, said, if you can get paid for what you like to do, it's not work. I mean, people might say that, you know, having babies is a purpose, but that may not be no. your passion. Right. Right. <laughs> no, may, and even well. it, because having babies is not a goal in life really i mean purpose but, is an and, integral and part of being i don't mean to demean i don't mean to demean childbirth yeah. but it's <laughs> <Whatever> it's it, <laughs> it yeah. brings it down to its base nature it's almost a, yeah. a form of you can do these things and that's your purpose in life no mm. that's not your purpose when you think about purpose and passion i i, yeah. I love that and getting back to early childhood mm-hmm. because when you yes. when you ask the question initially could these incarcerations have been prevented Let's look at this. What we know is that children start being kicked out of their child care programs at about eight months of age. Mm-hmm. Mainly because they don't know how to regulate. Yes. For crying and biting. Mm-hmm. And then that lack mm-hmm. of regulation. So let's just say child is kicked out, black, black boy, at eight months. Eight and then months. at about two, well, you know what two-year-olds do? No, stop, don't. They're going to exercise their own agency. And they're kicked out for hitting. Threes are twos on steroids. People prepare you for twos, but nobody warns you about threes. Threes, oh my goodness. So threes are not, they're just going to try you. They collude. They're they're wonderful when they're wonderful, but lots of people don't have the patience. So this child now is kicked kicked out for throwing a chair. At four, the same little boy is kicked out for kicking the teacher. So now this child is entering kindergarten. They have already lost faith in the school system. They have already decided school is not a safe place or space for me. And like Philip said, schools are white spaces. So now they're labeled, they, they, they behave towards that label. And then by second grade, they are acting out. And studies show little girls, by the time they're in middle school, if they've been kicked out a lot, they're really fighting back because they've decided no one's going to treat me like this again. Mm -hmm. So here we are, by the time the child is, if you just Google five-year-olds handcuffed at school, 
They're calling the police on these children already. By the time they're in middle school, they're totally disengaged from the learning process, do not trust their teachers. And now that preschool to prison pipeline is well established. Um, I don't know if you know, I also worked in youth corrections for two years. And I would look at these babies because in Colorado, you can be detained at 10 and wondered what crack did they fall through? Were these the suspended children that we could have saved? So let's go back to the eight month old and work our way up. What is it that, that the adults in the room need to be doing in order to make whatever that these kids, these toddlers, these little tots are doing into a teachable moment for them? The first thing they have to do is understand themselves. In order to help a child regulate, you have to be regulated. The key to addressing the difficult and challenging behaviors of children is to address your own behavior. Babies are going to cry and babies are going to bite. That's their job. How you respond as an adult can set the entire trajectory of their lives. So what do you do? You provide the calm to quell their chaos. Because a baby is screaming doesn't mean you scream. Because a baby is screaming doesn't mean you get mad. When that child is screaming, then your job is to regulate with the child. You remember older people when they would rock babies? That pat, pat, pat. That was regulation. They were regulating with the child. The breathing deep with the child. To know that that baby is teething and to give them a teething toy. To understand this is natural. My response to it must be a calming adult regulated behavior. However, let's be real. There are times it gets to be too much. I directed child care facilities. We had a child who cried from the time he came till the time he left, found out he was allergic to the formula and in, in pain. But mm-hmm. I had a teacher step out of the classroom. I walked down the hallway. I said, who's watching your kids? And she said, I don't know. And I don't care, but I can't stand to look at him right now. I said, you did the right thing. You go take a walk. I will cover your classroom until you've calmed down. Sometimes it gets to be too much. Do not blame the baby. Get help. Ask for help. Call for help. She stepped out of the classroom. When she came back, she said, do I still have a job? I said, absolutely, but I only have one ask. You have a phone in your room. Next time, just call me. Don't leave your children unattended. So not only must adults know when they're at the end of their rope, but their directors and supervisors and managers and principals have to be available to provide the support when teachers don't know what else to do. That's an important issue because I know of so many teachers who are complaining that admin is not available to them, that they refuse to come in, that they refuse to participate in the classroom because that's not their job. It's the teacher's job and the teacher just needs to learn how to deal. So unless you have, and correct me if I'm wrong, unless you have a cohesive team mentality where everybody is working to serve the students and each other, Mm -hmm. you're going to have failure and it's not going to be good. It is not going to work. Everyone whose foot touches that space is responsible for every child in that space. Every child including the cafeteria worker. My husband, when he left corporate America, was a school bus driver. One day he told me, he said, I have the most important job of everyone. And I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) Tell me more. He said, I get those children at the beginning of the day, and I get to set the tone for their whole day. And no matter what happened during the day, I can make it right before I drop them off. Beautiful way to see his job. That's everyone. So yes, not only must the entire school work together, but they have to implement the same behavioral plans, say this, use the same words, have the same expectations. 
not pit each other against each other. I consider myself an expert in this. Can I tell you when I accompanied one of my early childhood mental health consultants to a school and the child just decided to get mad and urinate on the walls, I was at a loss. I'm like, well, that's new. Haven't seen that one. <laughs> I was <gonna> say, <laughs> that's a new one. <laughs> one of the tower three. Thirty years, and I'm and she goes, my staff person says, fix your face. Stop frowning. <laughs> nice. That's teamwork right there. <laughs> and she said, he's feeling powerless, and this is the way that he's gaining power. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual, and I'm thinking, in all my 40-some-odd years, I've never seen it. And she handled it beautifully because she was the adult. She realized this is a power grab. He's feeling powerless. And she said, I'm glad you got that out. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think we should do? Because we don't want people walking in this. What should we do? And he was so shocked that she was so calm. And she said, I have an idea. Why don't we go to the bathroom and get what we need and clean it up and then we'll talk. Does that work for you or do you have a better idea? He goes, I'll go to the bathroom and I'll clean it up and then we can talk. Power. She mm-hmm. said, that works for me. But that's how you handle those situations. But teachers have to have the support to do that. And she was there to support the teachers. Principles before personalities. Oh, I love that. Love that. It's like, geez, you are driving me crazy, but I know I can't hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it's okay to tell the kids. You're driving me nuts right oh, now. I say that sometimes. And to show them one of the things I have to do with my teachers all the time <laughs> is to give them permission to be upset. I had one teacher, oh, this little girl, she won't do anything I say. She won't listen, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. the way she phrased everything, the child took a toy. I went to observe. And mm. she goes, do you think it's okay to take toys from our friends? Yeah. She knocked down another child's block structure. Do you think it hurt his feelings? Yeah. And I finally said, um, she said, they won't see, she won't do anything I ask. I said, but you asked her nothing. You asked for her opinion. And she gave it to you. And I said, are you happy with her behavior? She said, not at all. I said, well, will you stop smiling, please? Can you say, look, I need you to put that back where you got it. She goes, can you show me? She lo and behold, the child did something else. And she said, teacher, you want this? I said, I don't. With a stern face, I said, I do not want it. But what I want is for you to go back and give it to the child you just took it from right now. And she said, okay. She goes, I can do that? Of course you can. You're human with emotions. And you can go to your director and say, sometimes I can't stand that kid. Because when you can say that, then you take ownership for your behavior and you're less apt to target the child. You see, sometimes I can't stand that kid makes it your problem, not the child's. You make me feel a lot better about how I was dealing with elementary school kids. (laughs) Am I unique or why why do I just want to scream and run right now? But yeah, if you develop the relationships and you're authentic with them, you know, we always talk about that. Gosh, kid, well, we can't have that. That's like a mess in the hallway and class is over in 10 minutes. So, (laughs) but I think it brings up the point that every classroom, every school, every environment needs to be safe. And by safe, it's not that we don't say these things, it is. A child is allowed to be themselves, to speak their mind, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a teachable moment. That's not kid. how we phrase if, if, if Here's what I'm hearing you say, because we take them away. We don't clown them in front of other people. We don't mm-hmm. discipline them in front of other people, Never. because we already know what that reaction is going to be. And the older they get, the better they are at smacking back. We saw yeah. that teacher that grabbed the cell phone from that one student, and that was not Yes. So, so we need to make sure that a student feels 
welcome, wanted, heard, and needed. Absolutely. As, as well as valued. Mm, yeah. And that can only happen yeah, yeah. if we allow them to learn and we teach them. If we allow them to get away with behaviors, we're telling them that that's an okay thing to do and it makes it unsafe for other students. Wow. Yes. And so we've already mm -hmm. eliminated the term of respect in the classroom. You know, because... uh, yeah, go ahead. Tony, you're, you're, you're so right. And creating that safe space where everyone is valued, that's what it takes. And when you have these three basic rules that we usually have in early childhood, I keep myself safe, I keep my things safe, I keep my friends safe. We talk about how we keep each other safe. I saw a sign in a second grade classroom that I loved. It said, it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to be mean. So if a child is mad, I'm so mad. I see you're upset. I can tell you're really, really mm -hmm. angry. What can we do about it? Acknowledge that child's feelings and mm -hmm. then help them to respond appropriately to the feelings that they have. Yes, you're angry. They took that toy and you are really mad about it. What are some of the things that we can do? And that's how we keep our friends safe. We keep ourselves safe when we tell people how we feel. Mm -hmm. When I can say, John, when you knock over my block, blocks that really hurt my feelings and when john says i don't care like four-year-olds will the teacher can come and say but we keep our friends safe and when you hurt someone's feelings and you don't care that's not safe so what can we do now to make sure we're keeping our friends safe and then come up with some ideas but you're right we have to model that behavior and we can do that when we don't join in the behavior because sometimes we join in and we get mad and then we're we mad at back. <laughs> and then we are horrible role models on how to behave. Yeah. There are times, mm -hmm. but then we have to it can happen. do an about face <laughs> and we have to say, okay, what just happened shouldn't have happened. Yes, we had a good time, but we can journal on that. Let's all write down how we felt about it. But just remember this, we can't do it again. Yes, absolutely. You know, one and, of the things I found is when you're trying to fit the kids into the system, mm -hmm. a lot of times that's when you lose your stuff. It's like, wait a minute, we got four minutes to get to pee and this is how they, what, what, what are you doing? Oh no, you can't be doing that because I got three minutes now. Mm -hmm. And then you have to back the train up and go, and today I might be a minute late. <laughs> and that's okay. I think we yeah. need to teach regulation. I think we need to model yeah. regulation. And that's one way of doing it. If we get yeah. caught up in the moment and we're in a mad dash to get someplace. Mm -hmm. You miss the kid, huh? What does it, what does it take to notify the, the other person yeah. running behind a little bit just to let you know? One, it's respectful. Two, it allows you to take a deep breath and then go ahead and do what you're going to do and being more effective in feeling better about it. Tony, doesn't that work for everything? I have been in right. meetings like this that are going over. It's like two minutes before 11 and my meeting starts at 11 and I get in that panic until mm -hmm. I say, excuse me, it looks like we're going over. Let me text the people at my next meeting to let them know I'll be late. And once I do that, mm -hmm. I can calm down and be present. And I think yeah. because of the way schools are structured and schedules and timing and all of that, that teachers are under so much stress. But when we can do exactly what you did, what you said and let go and say, this is what's happening, then our stress is not taken up or translated to children. And every child is a child until they're 18, so even high schoolers. And yeah, then men we can be more calm, and we can regulate ourselves while also regulating them. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. When you're looking at the clock, you start to lose track of the people. Yes. So that's, i got to back it up. And it happens in the hallways, too, which is always fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so going back just yeah. a little bit to something – I wanted to hear from you because we're starting to get close on time, unfortunately, because I would love to do this again. I think we could, I think we could have a bigger conversation later too. Um, is let's say that I'm standing in my classroom and I get 
all these new students. I'm in an alternative program. Um, Philip, let's say that you're in a mainstream classroom, mm -hmm. just because I want to mess with your mind. And we have all these students. I have, let's say, 20 students. He has 40. And oh we have students who have been through the system. They've been bandied about, and they are not well-regulated. They've learned that they have no value all the way through school. How does... Let's take Philip first in the mainstream classroom. What are the steps he does in order to create that safe environment so that those students are able to come in and they're able to start learning and succeeding? And I know it's not always going to be successful, but what are some of the steps he can take? First is to see every child's humanity and to make sure we're not judging them by the lowest moment and point in their lives Absolutely. and to find out who they are. So what I would do so many times, teachers make the mistake of going into schools and it's my classroom, my rules, my way of doing things. No, you're the visitor. You're the visitor. That school was there before you came. It'll be there after you leave, but the children in that neighborhood are the constant. So yes. when they get, when you get into that space, say, you know what? This is an honor and a privilege just for me to be here with you. And I don't have an agenda today other than getting to know who you are. So if you were to meet me on the street or somebody you like, how would you tell me who you are? Some of you may rap. Some of you may do poetry. Some of you may sing. Some of you may be writers. So I'm wondering what kind of activities we can have to tell me who you are and what you need from me because I'm here to serve you. And any rappers in the group, your corners over there, musicians over there, and let them work together in ways they probably hadn't before, but they can come together with a commonality. Did I leave anyone out? Yes, I'm a, I'm a dancer. All right, I need some dancers. <laughs> or can she dance your rap? But you're going to tell me who you are and what you need. And what you get with that very first activity is some insight into their creativity, mm -hmm. how they show up and what their skills and talent. They take center. You're so a teacher as a mentor servant. I yeah. love that. Yeah, I love that. Facilitator, friend. Absolutely. <laughs> what, what I have found, and even yeah. as a college professor, you know, those of you who have taken classes recently online, you know, you have to post a discussion and then respond to two other people. You've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Students hate it. Hate mm. it. Universities love it. So what I do is I say, you have mm. to make one discussion post. I don't care how you do it. You can make it a video. You can make it a poem. You can sing it. You can record yourself dancing to it. Doesn't matter. Oh my goodness. The creativity. And because they can do it their way, they love it. So oh, I've had oh. rap battles in discussion forums. <laughs> I want that. Yes. I would sit back and go, I'm watching. That's I amazing. <laughs> that. We have to get rid of this. All children need the same thing. Yeah. They're coming to you uniquely who they are. When we talked earlier from their own environments, their own social location, their own cultural lens, you're coming with yours. Practice cultural humility and get rid of it. These are not your children. They were not raised in your environment. They don't have the same cultural values that you have. Be humble and learn who they are, and then and only then can you really teach them. Amen. Exactly. Yeah. I think on that note, we're going to wrap up because I can't think of a more beautiful way of finishing. This has been so much fun. Isn't it? We have a lot I of fun. I loved it. I learned <laughs> so much from you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I don't want to gush, but I, wherever it is that you know that this environment exists in a school area, can I go there and work? Because... <laughs> I would love it. I would just love it to balance. Oh. I learned so much just listening to you. Jeez, oh, definitely. Oh, and from you too as well. You know what I appreciate from both of you is your authenticity. 
you make it very, very comfortable and easy to be authentic okay. in this space. So thank you well, for that. Thank you, because you're authentically you. wonderful. Thank you. You are. <laughs> Sorry, gosh, gosh. Definitely. <laughs> so until next week, we are going to sign off. And thank you for joining us. And we're going to have a dilly-dally of a show then. So be sure to stay tuned. Make sure that you subscribe and hit that like button. Bye-bye. Aloha.